This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. I pulled the truck through and hopped out to lock the gate behind me. Immediately, I, I felt as if I needed to get back into the truck as quick as possible. Look, lady, I'm a single mom. I have no man, no gun, and no place to hide. If he breaks this door down, what am I supposed to do? Throw this knife at him? Where are the effing cops? From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you two true horrifying tales and a listener voicemail that just might keep you up at night. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. And a thanks to the folks over at Audible Blog for listing Disturbed in their article of the best horror podcast to binge listen for a scare. Now I've linked the article in the show notes, so make sure you go check it out. Maybe you'll find another spooky podcast to binge. It is that time of year after all. We open the show hearing from Reddit user DigTacBro, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford. And we spot the shadow in the tree line. I work for my city's water department. My everyday job consists of repairing leaks and doing new installations for businesses and homes. There are two parts to our water department that keep everything running. Distribution, where I normally work, and production. Production deals with the chemical side of things. They chlorinate the water and do water sample checks. Production is also responsible for the upkeep of our water well sites and our water storage facilities. You know, like the tall water towers you might have in your city. Mowing grass is one of those responsibilities. Both of our departments are extremely understaffed right now, so we sometimes give the production guys a hand with the grass when they need it. A couple of weeks ago, it was my turn, and here is where the weirdness begins. My city is in central Louisiana, with a population of about 45,000 people. No matter which way you travel into or out of town, you're gonna see plenty of trees. As such, a lot of our well sites are located out in the boonies. So, most of our city trucks are four-wheel drive with mud grips because it's needed more often than not. I had four sites to cut that day. I headed out just before sunrise to the one at the end of a long dirt road, where if trouble strikes, your phone better be charged because no one is going to be able to hear you yell for help. Surprisingly, this isn't where my strange encounter took place. The sun was rising as I was approaching my first site, and on the road ahead of me stepped out a doe with her two fawns. Excitedly, I hurried to snap some pictures. To my surprise, the mum and her babies were not afraid of the loud rumbling diesel I was driving. The speckled fawns made their way across the path as the mom calmly watched me in the truck. Once the babies were safely across, she looked back the way she came and then joined the little ones in the tree line on the opposite side of the road. I breezed through my mowing, loaded the equipment back onto the trailer, and texted my mom the picture of the deer as I headed back into town. My mom messaged me back saying, I've read that deer are an omen of good fortune, 
Looks like you're gonna have a great day. Be safe. I love you. And I did have a great day. I knocked out the next two sites without issue and everything was going smooth, until I reached the gate of the last place I had to mow. McKeithen's site is the biggest one we have that's closer to town. It's about the size of a football field. It's not in the middle of nowhere, but it is on the outskirts of the city. There's normally plenty of traffic that travels the road there, so there's really no feeling of seclusion, even though it's surrounded by thick woods on three sides. I've cut this spot plenty of times, but that day felt different. I pulled the truck through and hopped out to lock the gate behind me. Immediately, I, I felt as if I needed to get back into the truck as quick as possible. I made my way down the driveway to park near the tower like I have many times before, but after I parked and killed the truck, everything felt heavy and silent. I don't know how long I sat until I was able to will myself to open the door and get out. Instantly, I felt eyes on me. The feeling was coming from the back right corner of the field outside the fence, just in the tree line where the palmetto bushes grow. It calmed my nerves and reminded myself that I was surrounded by an eight-foot inclimbable fence with a gate locked. And yeah, if someone had a gun, they could have shot me if they wanted to, but they weren't going to actually get to me. If the barbed wire at the top of the fence didn't get them, a face full of weed-eater string and blades would. I jumped on the zero turn and took off mowing, keeping an eye on the back corner during every pass. After about two hours, I mean, it took multiple runs due to the overgrowth, I had the entire front mode, and it was time to hit the back by the creepy corner. I was about to head that way, but the more blades wouldn't engage. I had to take the covers off, pull grass out of the belts, and out from under the deck. I had to grease the pulleys and do all sorts of troubleshooting. I finally got the blades going, but then the gas light came on. I didn't realize until later, but it felt like something was doing everything it could to keep me from going to that part of the lot. I finally got everything up and running and mowed the back as quickly as possible, doing everything I could to keep my sight on the fence. I finally got done and loaded the mower. I still had to do a little bit of weed eating around that area, but when the weed eater wouldn't start, I knew it was time to go. I hadn't an issue with it all day, but that was the last hint that I needed to get out of there. After pulling the gate and locking it behind me, I turned out onto the highway to head home, not before looking back at the corner one last time. And that's when I finally saw it. The unmistakable shadow of a figure standing in the palmettos. It wasn't trying to hide or make itself unseen. It was there. Being at a safe distance from it, I stopped and watched. It moved to the side as if it were bending to try to see me better at the road. It had no distinguishing features, no hair, no clothes, just a person-shaped mass. I decided I had to get as far away from there as I could. The thought that I'd been so close to it for so long and, and never saw it sent chills to my core. I called my mom later that night and told her what happened. She told me that she did some more reading about seeing the deer and learned that they're a sign of protection. That some people believe that a deer means a higher power is watching over you. Well, after my mom told me that, I couldn't help but think, what if I had not seen the deer that morning? Would I have even seen the shadow? Would it have been able to do something to me? Why did it choose to show itself to me? I mean, is it something about me, or is it tied to that part of the woods? My mom texted me even later that night. She was sitting out in her back steps in my old little hometown when she heard some rustling near her storage shed. She shone her light into the dark, and what stands there, 
but a deer. Deer had never come into the backyard before, but that night, a large deer stood tall, staring back at my mom. She told me it felt like as if it was there to say, it's okay, he's safe, don't worry, we got him. Do you have your own terrifying encounter? Did something unexplained happen to you? Let us know and get featured on the podcast. Email mystory at disturbedpodcast.com. Next up, we have a listener voicemail from Trey, and he just might have something in his house. I am from West Virginia, and I recently just moved back here. Uh, I used to live here, grew up here, moved back here when I bought a business with my wife, and we moved into a rental home about eight months ago. And I have three girls. My oldest girl at the time was, she was a little over two, and she has never really had any experiences with anything paranormal up until this point. But we had at this specific rental home, we had a very weird, eerie vibe. And it was very much just like a very down, dark feeling ever since we moved into this house. And it was hard to describe because I've never felt anything like it. So after a couple of nights of staying in the house, my, my two and a half year old kept saying that she was seeing a shadow, weird shadows every night. And that's what she kept waking up, coming into our room every night. She had never done this before when we moved from the previous home. So we had to keep putting her back to bed. She would refuse to sleep in this room. And after a couple days, I was up in her room. This was in the middle of the day. I was, she was standing on top of her diaper table where I was getting her dressed and stuff. And she points over at the open doorway where there, there was nothing there. I mean, at all. And she said, daddy, look, there's the shadow. There's the shadowy thing. And I looked over and there was absolutely nothing there. She was like, you don't see it. We actually ended up moving out of this house into our kind of forever home. And she had never had another instance of talking about shadows, seeing shadows or anything. So I, I still think back about those couple months we spent in that house. And it, it just, it still gives me the chills that moment where she told me that it was, you know, whatever it was, was standing there in the door. Anyway, that's my story. You guys are awesome. Keep doing great work and I'll keep listening. Thank you. Are you listening alone? Rather brave of you. As a listener of Disturbed, I would assume you might be interested in the darker side of things. And with that being the case, I've got a show that will fit right into your dark side lineup. 
30 Morbid Minutes is a podcast that explores morbid, macabre, and downright grisly topics pulled from history and the headlines of today. And this podcast wouldn't be what it is without the two amazing ladies hosting, Elise Willems and Jessica Vasami. And I gotta say, it's their combination of humor and information that makes it one of my favorite podcasts. It's a lighter approach to some of life's darkest subject matter. Things like the Victorian obsession with death and superstition, obituary bandits and grave robbing, the last meals of death row inmates, Pretty fascinating stuff. How about being buried alive? Absolute nightmare fuel. Death on cruise ships, the hidden killers of the Victorian era, and tons of other fascinating discussion. Now, just to give you a little taste, here's a short clip from the show. No, but that's so crazy. Yes, gas was truly a, a silent, invisible killer. But it could be very bombastic and deadly, especially in the kitchen. Yeah, these pre-gas stoves and chimneys, they had a release to release pressure and ventilation, but then new tech like radiators and these hot water sealer units, they had a ton of pressure buildup with very few options for release. And so if you had a faulty or a malfunctioning valve, it could cause a massive explosion. Mm. There's an unusually high amount of art on the internet of women flying through kitchens in the Victorian era sent into the air by a <laughs> gas explosion. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Which my, There's so much of it. It's like, why is there so much of this? And my one request, I we have some very, very kind and generous fans of the show that do fan art. Please draw Jessica and I flying through the air uh, by a gas explosion. So I beg you. I would love it. Honestly, it's pretty much one of my first listens each time a new episode drops. You can follow 30 Morbid Minutes now in your favorite podcast app. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the deliciously frightful. Disturbed Podcast with your host, Chad. And finally, we close out the show hearing from Reddit user Behold, I Do What I Do. Featuring voice work by Tanya Eby. And we endure months of stalking. I've quibbled with the thought of publicly sharing my story for a while now. Recently, 
I've arrived at a place where I think the benefit of sharing outweighs the risk. People can be so judgmental. So I'm taking a chance and just putting it out there. Maybe it will help someone. Many times I've looked back on the odd events leading up to the scariest night of my life, October 5th, 2015. I'd like to say that I did everything right, but honestly, in hindsight, I should have done more. I am convinced that my son, who was three and a half years old at the time, actually saved me from harm that night. I could have easily become another statistic in the crime database. Although my stalker did not hurt me physically, it took me months to get past the psychological damage. Here is my story. All names have been changed for obvious reasons. In May 2012, I temporarily exited the workforce following the birth of my son, Chris. He was born with a physical birth defect that would require multiple corrective surgeries during his first year of life. He was also born two and a half months early, which had complicated things further, and ICUs are no fun. Chris's father, Aaron, agreed that I should stay home with our son until he was one year old, considering the circumstances. In May 2013, I felt comfortable enough to leave my son with a babysitter, so I went job hunting. I ended up being hired on the spot as a waitress at a small but very popular chain restaurant in my little town. Let's just say that this little diner is widely known for their waffles, and leave it at that. I was hired on to work second shift, the newbie shift, because it's not as busy. After two months, I had worked my way up to first shift. The breakfast shift is the moneymaker. By the summer of 2014, I had long built of a clientele of regular customers that enjoyed my service and tipped me well. Enough for me to have a little put back in savings, which came in handy when Aaron and I broke up. It was not an amicable split at first. I ended up moving out of our apartment with Chris and renting a small two-bedroom trailer in the same town. It was mid-November of 2014 when I first met Ryan, the man who would later stalk me. It was an abnormally slow Saturday morning shift at the diner. Two men, one late 40s, early 50s, the other maybe early 20s, walked into the diner together and sat down in my section. They were my only customers at the time, so when the older man of the two started making small talk, I had the time. The older man introduced himself to me as Ryan, and the younger man with him was his son. Right away, by his body language and tone, I could tell Ryan was being flirtatious with me. He even cracked a cliched joke, saying, there's no way you work here because you're too pretty, and you have all your teeth. Honestly, I wasn't super amused with that tired kind of humor. I had heard it a million times over by then. And while Ryan was decent in the looks department, I'd even venture to say semi-attractive, I was a little annoyed with being casually hit on by him. I was 25 years old at the time, and much closer to his son's age. But nevertheless, I faked merriment because a happy customer equals a better tip. It's just part and parcel to the job. Suffice it to say, my fake laughing and smiling paid off, earning me a $10 tip on a $20 ticket. They were only there for 30 minutes, too. Not too bad, I thought to myself. The following weekend, Ryan came back to the diner. This time, and every subsequent time thereafter, he came alone. There was nothing unusual about this interaction than from the last. I took his order, we chit-chatted when I had time, I kept his coffee refilled, and that was it. But apparently, he enjoyed his experience because again, he left me a nice $12 tip on an $8 ticket. Ryan began visiting the diner every weekend from then on up until the end of December. By then, he had started coming two to three times per week, and at this point, he really started showing an interest in getting to know me. Now, that's not something unusual per se, 
I had some other regulars that I actually developed friendships with, some even getting me Christmas gifts and such. So I did tell him things about myself in casual conversation during his visits. Just normal things that normal people talk about. One of the things I eventually told him about was the medical miracle that is my son. I even bragged about the fantastic job his doctors did, showing him the before and after photos of his surgeries. Over those past several weeks, Ryan's attitude toward me had changed. He was no longer this annoying, flirty, middle-aged guy, but rather a seemingly caring person. Maybe I was naive, but I genuinely appreciated his kindness, and I did not interpret it as a romantic gesture at all. Ryan continued coming by on my shifts for breakfast three times a week. February 2015 is when the first strange event occurred, which was soon followed by a string of more. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I had picked Chris up from the babysitter and was heading home from work. Now, where I lived was on a small, uphill, dead-end road. As you pulled onto my road from the main highway, you could easily see my trailer on the right side at the top of the hill. It was positioned perpendicular to the road, and the backside of it is visible as you drive up the road. As I eased my way up the hill, something immediately caught my eye. I could clearly tell my back door was open. I put the brakes on immediately and tried to figure out what to do. I literally never touched or unlocked that door, much less opened it, so I knew something was off. A door is not going to unlock and open all by itself. I ended up parking my car off to the side of the road and calling Aaron. At this point, we were on good terms and co-parenting our son very well. Aaron came straight over and checked out my trailer while I remained back in my vehicle with Chris. About five minutes after entering, he called me and told me it was all clear. Again, small trailer. So I made my way up the hill, expecting to have been robbed or something. But nothing was missing. There was no damage to the door, so Aaron basically brushed things off, saying that I must have forgotten to close the door myself or something. I knew better, but since there was no sign of a B&E, &E, I let it go. Two days later, on Thursday, I come home from work and the same thing. My back door is wide open. At this point, I know I'm not crazy. I know I had locked that damn door. It didn't have a deadbolt, by the way. It just had a lock on the doorknob that you turn. I had even tested it out that morning before work to make sure it was locked. So I called Aaron again. I stayed parked with Chris on the side of the road while he did a quick pass through my trailer. And again, nothing out of the ordinary except my open back door. A quick inventory showed that nothing was missing. I was nervous at this point, thinking that someone had broken in twice, and Aaron disagreed. He attributed this problem to a faulty doorknob lock, which made no sense to me. He then went to Lowe's and purchased a type of heavy-duty swivel lock to install on the door that locked from the inside of my home. He wanted to put my mind at ease, at least. So while he installed the lock, I combed through my house. I mean, I literally spent hours after Aaron left inspecting every nook and cranny of my trailer, the outlets, my showerhead, vents, my panty drawer, etc. I thought that maybe some freak had broken in and planted secret cameras since they didn't take anything. I didn't find anything amiss, so I begrudgingly let it go. Two days after that, so on Saturday afternoon, I'm off work, heading uphill on the road toward my driveway. My son is spending the weekend with his dad, so I have the house to myself that evening. A wave of relief washes over me, as I see that my back door is still closed. Now, I don't know why I decided to do this, but something compelled me to actually inspect the door up close. I needed to also make sure it wasn't tampered with. To my horror, I discovered that it had. 
There were pry marks along the edge of the door jamb. I immediately went inside and unlocked the door so I could open it and inspect further. The edge of the door was bent to hell and back on the inside, where the doorknob met the jamb. That damage wasn't there two days ago when Aaron installed that new lock. I deduced that someone had probably been using the credit card trick or something similar to easily break into that door since the way it locked was by the knob. And when they figured out that would no longer work, they tried to pry it open, not knowing that a new lock was on the other side of the door. I'm thankful that lock held. At this point, I called the police and made a report. They basically told me there wasn't much they could do in this instance other than document the incident. They told me to call them if anything else happened. Needless to say, that wasn't satisfactory to me, but I didn't know what else to do. I didn't feel comfortable sleeping at home that night, so I ended up making the hour drive to my parents' house and crashing there. Nothing else happened for a little while. By March, I had been able to put February's events behind me and feel secure in my home again. I was working and going about life as usual. At this point, Ryan had begun visiting the diner five days a week. Oddly enough, he was there each shift that I worked. It became a running joke with the other waitresses, and in fun they teased me about having a stalker. I would soon find out just how true that actually was, because in April, things got weird. I came home from work one day to find my grass had been mowed. Now, I usually paid a neighbor to do it for me since I didn't have a lawnmower. My yard was small, but maintaining it was a requirement of my lease agreement. My neighbor didn't charge much to mow it, and he needed the extra cash, so it was a win-win. I knew I hadn't asked my neighbor to mow recently, so I thought it was strange. I asked him if he went ahead and decided to do it anyway, and he said that he hadn't. So then I called my landlord and asked her if she had mowed my grass for some reason. The lease said if it reaches a certain height, then she would mow it and charge me for it. I knew my grass hadn't been high enough to warrant that, but it was the only plausible explanation. Of course, she said no. She hadn't mowed my grass. I was stumped. I then assumed that an anonymous neighbor must have mowed my grass out of the goodness of their heart. You know, like a pay-it-forward kind of thing. I mean, what else was I to think? All throughout April and the beginning of May, my grass was being anonymously mowed once per week. I know it sounds strange hearing it, but at the time, I genuinely thought a neighbor was just doing neighborly things. And I didn't want to be recognized for it. On May 5th, 2015, Aaron and I decided to take Chris to the zoo. When we get back from the zoo late that afternoon, we discovered that my front door was cracked open. Now, my front door did have a deadbolt, but I must have forgotten to lock it. How freaking stupid of me. You can imagine how upset I was due to my back door being tampered with multiple times back in February. I just didn't understand why this was happening again. Like all the other times, nothing was taken. My belongings seemed untouched. Yes, I was feeling targeted, but I didn't call the police because I felt like I technically had nothing to report. There was nothing stolen or vandalized, just an open front door, so I let it go again. Two days later, I would discover the depth of things. May 7th, 2015. It was one of my rare off days. I was at home relaxing when the diner called me. I answered, thinking maybe my boss wanted me to come in to work. It wasn't my boss, but my co-worker, Celia. She stated that someone named Mary called the diner asking to speak to me. Mary had asked for me by name. Since I wasn't at work that day, Mary left her phone number and requested that I call her as soon as possible. I thanked Celia for relaying the message and ended the call, perplexed. I didn't know who Mary was, but out of curiosity, I gave her a call. Mary ended up being Ryan's estranged wife. I didn't even know he was married. 
She informed me that Ryan had a nervous breakdown while they were arguing earlier. He started raving like a wild man about how my name is a better girlfriend than she is a wife. He told her that we were in love and that he had been taking care of me and my Down syndrome son for months. My son doesn't even have Down syndrome, by the way. My son is not mentally impaired. She initially thought that it was all just crazy talk, considering his mental state. He mentioned where I worked. He said we were going to get married. He said that I had asked him to adopt my son. He said that he was going to run away with me in order to get away from her. He even told her he started visiting me after following me home one day. When he said that, Mary knew that something was very wrong. Ryan had somewhat of a history with mental issues, and Mary was used to him weaponizing things to hurt her feelings during arguments, even if those things are lies. But she said this time was different. She knew he had started frequenting the diner, and red flags went way up for her when he admitted to following someone home. So she decided to call the diner to see if anyone by my name worked there. When Celia confirmed this, Mary perceived the possible danger, and she left me her name and number, requesting a callback. My head was spinning at this point. While things were finally starting to make sense, I was still gobsmacked. At one point in the conversation, Mary mentioned my grasping mode. Yes, Ryan even flaunted the yard work he did for me in her face. It was all very strange and very surreal. Basically, Ryan had been obsessing over me for months. He became delusional and had created a whole relationship between me and him and his mind. It was all in his head. And obviously, he was the one that was breaking into my home when I was gone. The visits. Why he did it, I still haven't pieced that 100% together. He never took anything. I imagine he was mowing my grass because that was his little way of taking care of me. By the end of the call, I decided to go to the police department in person to file a report about Ryan. I thought, at the very least, this is harassment and I needed it documented. Maybe I could get a restraining order. Mary offered to provide an official statement to the police as well, to which I thanked her. The PD took our statements, and the harassment complaint was filed. Although I couldn't get a PO based off my statement alone, I had no hard proof, the officer did assure me that he would personally go talk to Ryan. I then went straight to the diner to inform my boss, Chase, of the situation. Now, Chase took this very seriously. Just that morning, a third shift waitress actually brought up to Chase how a man came in the diner very early around 4 a.m. This man was trying to get her to tell him which days I'd be working that week. She told Chase it made her uncomfortable. So when I told Chase about Ryan, he went back and looked at the cameras from that morning. And sure enough, the man that was bothering third shift for info about me was Ryan. So Chase initiated the process through corporate to get a permanent ban on Ryan from the diner. It was approved at a later date. I was scheduled to work the following day and I was nervous throughout my entire shift. But thankfully, Ryan didn't show up, nor did he show up the following day or the next day after that. All was quiet at my home as well. The officer showing up at Ryan's house to speak with him must have spooked him enough to stop. Weeks, then months went by. No Ryan in sight. No vandalism at my home. No mysteriously mown grass. Nothing. My life had gone completely back to normal. But things changed again in October. October 5th, 2015. It was around 8 p.m., my son Chris fell asleep on the couch while watching a movie. I had dozed off as well until I heard a few very light knocks at my front door. I then walk to the kitchen and look out the only window that faces my driveway. No cars there except my own. So I figured the light tapping I heard at my door was either just the TV or my half-asleep brain playing tricks on me. 
I then returned to the couch and started playing a game on my phone. About five minutes later, I heard a few light knocks on my door again. This time I was wide awake, so I knew my brain wasn't playing tricks. So I walked back over to my kitchen window to double-check the driveway to see who was there. Again, my car was the only one in my driveway. Right as I go to close the kitchen window blinds, loud knocking suddenly erupts at my front door. And I mean loud, angry banging. I guess my instincts kicked in, and I sprinted to the couch. I scooped Chris up into my arms and ran down the hallway to his bedroom. I did the only thing I could think of in that fraction of a moment. He was groggy and confused, but he listened to my instructions. Get under your bed, stay under your bed, and don't come out until I tell you to. I then ran to my kitchen and grabbed a knife while dialing 911. I actually screamed at the door that I was calling the cops in hopes that it would scare them away. I positioned myself at the end of the hallway, which connects my son's room to the living room. This way I'd have a clear view of both the front door in front of me and my son's bedroom doorway behind me. As the operator picked up my call, the banging on my front door was getting even louder. 911 said she was dispatching police right away. She instructed me to stay on the line until they arrived. About 12 minutes into the call, the banging got more violent, rattling pictures off the wall. I thought for sure that they would break my door down at any moment. 911 asked me where I was located in the home, and I told her. She asked me if I could hide somewhere. She told me not to put myself in danger. In that tiny moment, I felt enraged. Hell no, I'm not going to hide. I'm not taking my eyes off my son's bedroom under any circumstance. Where are the cops? And besides, I lived in a small trailer, and the only hiding place for an adult is in my bedroom closet. I'd be easily found. So I just erupted over the phone. Look, lady, I'm a single mom. I have no man, no gun, and no place to hide. If he breaks this door down, what am I supposed to do? Throw this knife at him? Where are the effing cops? She assured me again that the cops were on their way and to stay on the line. More banging, but this time it moved to the actual side of the trailer. It sounded like they were taking a baseball bat and beating against the outside of the trailer. At that moment, Chris started shrieking. I ran the few steps over into his room to check on him. The loud commotion had just pushed his fear gauge over the edge. He was screaming slash crying incessantly under his bed. I quickly ascertained that he was physically okay, and I returned back to the end of the hallway to check on the front door. As I was explaining to 911 that my son was okay, just scared, I noticed that the banging had suddenly stopped. I waited another minute or so, trying to listen out for any sign of further escalation, like window breaking. All I could hear were sobs coming from my son's room. All in all, it took the cops 23 minutes to arrive. By then, the perp was long gone. For reference, I live about 10 minutes away from the police station. 911 even called it in as an active home invasion. I was livid about the response time. My front door was made out of some type of metal, just a cheap generic trailer door. It was now covered in dents. There were noticeable scratch marks on the lock. Failed attempt at picking the deadbolt. The siding on the trailer was damaged where the perp had hit it with something. Given the history, I immediately suspected Ryan was the perp. The police said since I didn't actually see the person, then they couldn't arrest him without an eyewitness. The most they could do was make a report. They did end up canvassing the immediate area in case he was on foot, since I didn't see a vehicle in my driveway prior to this happening. However, there was no sign of him or anyone around and about. I deduced that he probably had parked nearby out of sight, that way his vehicle wouldn't be spotted or recognized at my home. My home was situated next to a thin patch of woods that has public access roads on the other side. 
I also am absolutely convinced that Ryan had nefarious plans for me that evening. But when he discovered my son was at home with me, via his terrified shrieking, he bailed. He stopped trying to break into my home the moment my son, inadvertently, made his presence known. For whatever reason, Ryan always lit up when I talked about my son. He used to initiate conversations about Chris just to watch me dote over him. Looking back, I guess it was his morbid way of bonding with my child. And I think in his own warped way, he grew to care about him. So when he heard Chris scream, he decided to not follow through with whatever his plan was for me. I ended up taking a few days off of work because I was so shaken up. I stayed at my parents' house during that time because I was afraid to go home. My landlord had the damaged door replaced while I was gone. Realizing that I had a job and a life and that I couldn't stay gone forever, I knew that I had to go home. So I got a gun, a small caliber revolver, but it would do the job. And then I went home. I lived in that trailer for another four months before I saved up enough money to move. It was totally peaceful during those months, with no further events or altercations. But I just couldn't stand being there anymore. Since then, I have changed jobs, met someone special, gotten engaged, bought a house, and got a dog. No further sign of Ryan anywhere during any of these life changes. It's been nearly seven years since any sign of him. Ryan seems to have disappeared out of my life in the same manner he first appeared, out of nowhere. And I couldn't be happier that he's gone. Hopefully, it stays that way. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. Don't forget you can send in your own true terrifying tale, either in writing or as a voicemail. Head over to disturbedpodcast.com slash submit to find out how. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast or find the link in the show notes. And a big thanks to our newest supporters, Bren Mason, Jessica Pierce, Wes Chapman, Deanna Hunt, Stormfield, KT McSee, Barbara Savarino, John Swick, Summer Davey, Brooke the Gemini, Aaron Ortiz, Dee Dee, Kelly Allen, and Jenna Anderson. Thanks everyone so much for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.